0: Hey, welcome to Talk Gnosis, the web's premier talk show about Gnosticism, the occult, mysticism, religion, spirituality, magic, meditation, and anything else we feel like talking about.
1: You missed the uh, esoteric.
0: Uh, the esoteric. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mercury just left retrograde, so yeah. we're still catching up. Exactly. Uh, I'm Deacon Jonathan Stewart. I'm joined by Bishop Laney Peterson. Hi, Bishop. Hey,
1: hey! Good to see you, everybody.
0: Yeah, great to see you. And we have uh, an awesome guest tonight. Uh, we have Sam Block. Uh, Sam, I'll let you do your own intro, but I'll, I'll try. We have uh, Sam. He's a diviner. He's a writer. He's a blogger. He's a ritualist. Uh, Sam, I don't know how you like to describe yourself, but there's some of your many attributes.
2: I'm just some bloviating jerk online, let's be honest. Um <laughs> Uh, so yeah my name is sam block uh, also known as polyphonies i run the decade-old blog the digital ambler um a blog on hermeticism hermetic philosophy and theology and theosophy and all this kind of good stuff on greek magic papyri on geomancy um as you mentioned i'm a ritualist i'm a ceremonial magician uh, although i tend to focus more on the classical period of ritual magic um i'm a diviner i do geomancy, I do grammatomancy, I do this, that, and the other. I'm an initiated priest in La Rega de Ocho lucumí, more commonly known as Santeria. Um, and I am known for just saying a lot of things online all the time,
0: nonstop, constantly. Perfect. Well, we're online and we're saying a bunch yeah. of things, so <laughs> we're, we're in your wheelhouse. Um, If I was, folks, I'm a little out of it. I've been through the ringer lately, but I know we've all been through the ringer, such as life in the Konoma. So Sam, I got about, the show's about an hour. I have about an hour to make a Renaissance man joke. So because of (laughs) you, I'm (laughs) going to put it together, (laughs) but I got 45 minutes here to put it together. Uh, So while I work on that, let's jump into it with our questions. Sam, how do you define divination? Oh, gosh. Um... It
2: really depends on what kind of stance you're taking. I mean, from a practical perspective, I don't think anyone would disagree with this. I would say divination is the art and practice of using occult and spiritual means to gather information. But when I say information, I mean specifically data that makes a difference. You know, data is a Latin word meaning, that which is given to you. You can interpret anything and just look at anything, it's all data, but it could just be noise it comes information when really makes a difference, a usable, notable difference in your life. Um, how this is done, it's, I like considering divination on a spectrum from the purely intuitive, the purely spiritual to the purely technique based. On the one hand, on the intuition side, you have prophecy, you have medium shit, you have just outright receiving stuff from spirits or from the divine. On the other, you have pure technique based, you have like, weather forecasting i would consider weather forecasting to be pure technique no intuition at all forecasting prediction of things that are to be but most forms of divination as we would consider them tend to fall somewhere in the middle you know they use a mix of both intuitive technique as well as you know technique technique the manipulation of omens and signs and symbols through a process a procedure and i think that's you know I don't think anyone would necessarily disagree with that definition, but the word divination, when you look at its roots in Latin, it's to divinify something. It's to bring us closer to God and the gods or to bring God and gods closer to us, to infuse life with divinity. And that's kind of not the how of divination, that's more of the why of divination, I would say.
0: Okay. Well, I guess getting into some of the the hows and whys, how does divination work? Like that is like the actual method. Like does it reveal the future or does it just show you some possibilities or does it show you more about yourself so you can make better choices or dot, dot, dot?
2: God, you're starting with like
0: the hard
1: questions. Wow, Wow. We're all about gnosis here.
2: Yeah. So we, 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 we go right for it. We have to like lead into it gently. You've got it take a nice garden path. Not just throw me to the fire. <laughs> um, hey, uh, the
1: Gnostics were pretty hardcore. Uh,
2: not denying that. Um, <laughs> so how does divination work? Um, as always, I'm going to give the one answer I give to 99% of the questions I get asked. It depends. Um, yeah. What model are you working from? You know, yeah. what tradition are you working from? You know, a lot of modern diviners using tarot or, you know, other modern systems that are pretty popular today, don't have a well developed model of divination. They do it and it works and it's kind of the be all end all of it. But depending on what culture you're coming from, what your background is, who you're taught by, what it is you're taught, you can get a hundred different answers to how divination works. To me, I kind of divide them off into two camps. The older, more traditional camp in a world full of gods and spirits is that divination is literally you are communicating with a spirit or a god or a deity or some non-corporeal entity. And the method divination is the medium by which you communicate. So, for instance, like I said, I'm a priest in Lukumi, Santeria, and we have a number of forms of divination where I'm actually in a one-on-one conversation with my arisha. You know, by throwing some pieces of coconut on the ground, by shuffling some you know cut cowrie shells on you know, a mat or something. Those are their mouths and they're speaking to me using a alphabet, a language of their own. Um, so a lot of traditional cultures and modern cultures, if you have a spirit-based model of magic and esoteric stuff, tend to have a spirit-based model of divination, just like how there's a spirit-based model of magic versus an energy model. I would say the parallel to the energy model of magic for divination will be the the library model. You know, think the Akashic records, you know, you kind of spiritually reach out into this database, this library of knowledge that exists, and you check out a book and there's the information. This is largely a more modern one in the Western world, but we do see earlier uh, parallels to this. For instance, the 16th century geomancer mentor Robert Flood, who was one of the most brilliant actual renaissance men of his age, you know, he wrote the Utrius Kaya Cosmi, like this massive encyclopedia of how everything works. Like think Cornelius Agrippa's three books called philosophy times 10 mm-hmm. with a lot prettier pictures. Um, he had this theory of divination where it's kind of like tapping into the anima mundi you know, the soul of the world where you have your divine mind, the the divine spark that shares the same essence with the divine mind of God himself. And by entering a sort of light rapture or a light trance, you bring your whole body and soul and spirit and mind into harmony, which then allows you to more deeply connect to the anima mundi. And then that connection influences your soul with the right signals, the right patterns. And because mm-hmm. the soul moves the body, it then you directs your body to make the right actions to manipulate the symbols in the proper way. Okay. Once those symbols are manipulated, then you have your divine mind connected to interpret those symbols correctly. Because generation of symbols is one thing, interpreting them is a completely different mm-hmm. thing. But still this underlying notion of, you know, you're reaching out to something bigger, this matrix of information. So it's like, in that case, doing a divination reading is a lot like getting a printout of how things are, um, depending on your model.
0: Um, I'll I'll pause here, uh, Bishop, because I I know that uh, you're engaged with the divinatory arts, so just in case you have any questions or follow-up thoughts, so uh, I'm a rank amateur when it comes to any form of divination, so.
1: Sam and I are fairly sympathetic, I think, and a lot of you know, we're kind of on the same page with a lot of of this sort of information Um, and when it comes to divination, this is, you know, it's an art, it's a science, Um, but yeah, I mean, there's the art aspect of it, which I think does involve that ability to connect to the divine. But I think, it, as he pointed out, it depends on also on the method. Uh, there are some forms of divination. I think where there's a, something very different is happening. There's a different kind of connection, possibly even a different connection with a different kind of spirit or what, or the animus mundi, the, the soul of the world. Um, and it's it's a very different process. Uh, lenormand versus tarot versus runes. Uh, versus geomancy, I, it's, the methods are very different. I think they have their own egregores. That's and really fair I, to say, yeah. Yeah, and, and they do. And, and so you're con- you're connecting with something very different uh, each time this happens. And I also believe that the tools of, of a divination, personally, um, over time, you work with them and they become charged. Uh, as well with the with the aggregator and so they respond very differently so I for an example when I'm doing uh, geomancy I have a very specific set of geomancy tools same thing with with tarot and most uh, tarot diviners will tell you um, they will work with one or a handful of decks even if they collect decks because there is a major you have a relationship with your with your deck or with your tools and a substitute um, you can technically have things, you know. You can technically use the that those those tools, but they have not yet have been uh, conformed to you. There is not the relationship there between you and the tool or the tool and the guides. That that's my take on it.
2: Okay. I agree a lot of that. Although Percy, when it comes to GMancy at least a lot of forms of nation require a specific set of tools. Tarot requires a tarot deck. Playing card divination requires playing cards, you know, dice divination requires a set of dice. But one of the nice things about Geomancy is that's really tool independent. You know, you don't need a deck of Geomancy cards mm-hmm. or a set, a set of Geomancy dice. You could, you know, the traditional method is you go to a field of, you know, just plain barren yes. sand. And you take a staff and you just, you know, you hit poke. the, you poke 16 rows of just random dots, you know, in the sand in this kind of light diviner's trance. And then you just go through the rows two by two. And then you can, whether each row is odd or even, that gets you your figures, your your, your four, original four mother figures of the GMC chart. But that's a mess. It takes time. It's slow. Mm. And <laughs> I, I can still do and it. And not I,
1: everybody has sand. <laughs>
2: but I call it the stick and surface method because you can do it with a wax tablet and a stylus yep. or just pad and paper and pen and paper. Mm-hmm. So you can do it any sort of way. Um, but it's any method that can get you a binary result of odd or even, up or down, heads or tails. You can flip four coins, you can roll four dice, you can pluck up 16 potatoes from a field and count how many eyes are each potato. And that will get... you. To could. you in. So while I ha- I prefer my specific sets of Gmancy tools, I have a special deck of Gmancy cards I made. Um, or I use dice. I typically stay to those tools, but I haven't noticed a difference in my practice between how well G and responds between one or the other. It's more about my comfort level with them. Like it's going to be awkward for me to pull potatoes from a field. So,
1: yeah, particularly since if the, the the farmer could come out and catch you, yes, uh, stealing yeah. his potatoes. Well, my husband
2: grows potatoes in our yard, so half oh, me, okay, I can't well then you have to
1: deal with your husband for stealing his potatoes, but. Uh, He'll you know, I, I will say this, I mean, just, just on a personal level, when it comes to gym, you know, and, that, and that's one of the wonderful things about it, and what's why it's so attractive to people is that you don't need a lot of special tools. You're absolutely correct. Um, what I have found is that there are certain tools that I get better results with very likely because of, uh, of my comfort level. And that you know, and I that I do feel in some cases I establish a certain relationship. Um, for example, generating figures using a computer program has never worked for me. I agree. Yeah, but I know people for whom it does. Now, curiously, those people tend to be computer or mathematics geeks, and mm. it works great for them. Um, and just, and just, just a little side note here: I have a set of gaming dice that I that I use in an old Noxema um, container. <laughs> which I got from American Science and Surplus. And by the way, folks, esotericists around the country, American Science and Surplus is probably the biggest, uh, best-selling occult store in the country, and they don't even know it because they sell all this great stuff. But um, the funny thing is, is when I do my annual chart, I actually do the dot method using pen and paper. It's, it's a more much traditional. Lower, it's, more it's more traditional. Powerful. Yeah, and it's, it's got something going there. Um, but that's my tradition, and I, I think, and again, we we establish our own traditions, and that becomes part of I, the the connection that we have to the divination method. I think, in some cases,
2: it brings up a good parallel with Ifa divination, you know, the Yoruba West African form of divination that is not unrelated to geomancy. I don't want to talk too much about no. Ifa because I'm not initiated Ifa, but yeah. um, they do have a practice where they have these divining chains, Yohuele. And they'll, for like, for if you're just going there on on a Saturday to your Babalaos house, your priest's house, and you're just getting a reading, you know, they'll bring up the divining chain. You know, it's easy, it's effective, it works. But for really big readings, like life path readings or like the beginning of the year reading, they'll use the more traditional method of like shaking a bunch of palm nuts, which is a lot slower of a method, but it's considered to be more trustworthy because the aquele tends to be more talkative. It's more casual in a sense. So like hmm. what you're doing with the, with the stick and surface method for like your your beginning reading or like really big readings, that has good parallels in other systems. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. yeah. So I'll back it up a little bit. We have a, a wide ranging audience of uh, uh, of People whose whose knowledge uh, is all over the place. So we have enlightened beings, ascended masters, and rank beginners. So uh, <laughs> here's here's a question for for those who may not be in the know: What is geomancy?
2: So geomancy literally, if you look at the word, means divination by earth. Um, it's been used it, in that sense um, for about a, you know a thousand years. Well, more like eight hundred in Europe. Um, Back in the days of Saint Isidore Seville, when he compiled his whole etymologies book, he put geomancy as you know in his book along with the pyromancy and hydromancy and aeromancy as a form of you know scrying piles of dirt or rocks or stones. But the term was kind of reappropriated towards this form of divination that has origins in Arabia or northern Sahara. And you know, as I mentioned, you, know, you have you have this vast expanse of sand and desert. And from my studies and from my theories about can, there's this peculiar form of augury, of bird divination, back in uh, old days of Arabia, like pre-Islamic times, where normally we think of augury, we think of you know, people you know, tracing out you know, a templum in the sky and then seeing what happens with bird flight in that little section of the sky they draw out. But in Arabia, they had a different method. They would find a bird already lying down the ground and they'd make a start to chase it. And then they would chase the bird across the sand, and once it flew off, they would count how many foot tracks it left, whether it's odd or even. If they got an odd number, it was a no answer. If they got an even number, it was a positive answer. Um, the symbolism there being, if you're out you know, where the Bedouins are, you know where the travelers are in the waste, well, to be alone, to be left alone, to be in exile is death. But if you have company, you have survival, you have you know, power in numbers. So my theory is that this kind of developed into a process where we ourselves started making those dots in the sand. And developed to a system where you generate these binary figures. You know, a single figure in geomancy is four rows of either one or two dots. So two dots, two dots, one dot, one dot is the figure Fortuna Major, the greater fortune. One dot, one dot, two dots, two dots, the inverse figure, is Fortuna Minor, the lesser fortune. Because this is a binary structure, you can use binary mathematics, and it turns out there are 16 such figures. And these figures were combined and shuffled and manipulated using binary mathematics. You know, one plus zero is one, zero plus zero is zero, you know, like a computer does. And you end up with a chart. You start with four figures, the mothers. You kind of rearrange them into the four daughters. You add up pairs them into the nieces. You add up pairs the nieces into the witnesses, and the witnesses into the judge. And the judge gives you your answer. Um, that's kind of a very overview of g And why do we call it G-mancy? In Arabic it's called Ilm al-Ramu, the science of the sand. Because it was the practice of you know, coming to know things by means of sand. And the term at first in the Eastern Mediterranean, once it was star to be brought into Europe, um, was Rambolium, being kind of like a Greekization, your Hellenization of Ilmo Rambolium. But over time they start using the term geomancy to describe it. Well, science of the sand, seeing by earth, eh, it's close enough. Personally, I hate the word geomancy for it. <laughs> I find it to be not a good description of it. And ever since the Jesuits started going over to China as mission- in part of their missionary work, um, they we've had a problem getting feng shui confused with geomancy. So if you look up geomancy, up uh-huh. until a few years ago, even today, you look up geomancy in Google, you're just gonna find feng shui stuff. because uh, it's called it's translated geomancy, even though feng shui the word literally means wind and water, so nothing earth there at all. But propitious and fortuitous designing of the landscape and of one's home. So, okay. The Jesuits didn't know what they were saying. Oh, it's earth magic, we're going to call it geomancy. I prefer to think of geomancy better as theoretical alchemy. Mm -hmm. Consider, you know, back in your high school chemistry class, you know, we all know that a water molecule is H2O, two atoms of hydrogen bonded with one atom of oxygen in a single molecule, but how do you know that you know water is combined of those atoms. Did you ever you know go under the hood and actually mix a vat of hydrogen with a vat of oxygen? No, you didn't do that because that's dangerous. Instead, you learn the properties of hydrogen, you learn the properties of oxygen, and you model that reaction of putting them together with a chemical equation. So on paper, you actually model that reaction that demonstrated what things would happen. In a very similar vein, Geomancy is that exact same idea, but applied to the four classical elements. I mentioned how a geometric figure has four rows. Well, each of those rows is associated with one of the four elements, fire, air, water, earth. When a row has one dot, that element is active, it's present, it can exert change. When that row has two dots, that element is passive, it's missing, it takes in change. So, if you want to figure out the interaction of fire and water, you can model that geomantically to see how those elements interact and react over. So, just how chemical reactions can be modeled by chemical equations, alchemical reactions, you know, in the world or generally, more metaphorically, can be modeled through alchemical equations per geomancy. And that kind of shows the elemental flow and flux and ebb and change in the world. So that's how I consider Geomancy, to be theoretical alchemy, to explain how the things in the cosmos change.
0: Okay, extremely, extremely cool. Uh, Sam, if somebody wanted to, to start with Geomancy, where should they start?
2: My blog obviously uh, yeah. <laughs> I, i'm very humble obviously very very humble very very modest um so in terms of books um so i want to draw a distinction between arabic geomancy and european geomancy mm-hmm. this is fundamentally an, Arab, an arabic islamic art you know it has constantly been used in places that speak arabic or you know farsi or similar languages across all the sahara across all of the arabian peninsula even into india and points east and always far south as madagascar the further you got away from arabia or from sahara it kind of shifted a bit but not by too much it has been in constant use across all this, these parts of the old world since it developed around a thousand years ago it has always been produced it has always been used there but we have very little information on specifically Arabic practices of geomancy. You know, we have a lot of translators of Latin and French and German, which are nice, but very few for classical Arabic or classical farsi. So for that, it kind of puts us, you know, in the West as a disadvantage on top of the fact that these are very old school practitioners and they're still very secretive about the works. So yeah. it's hard for people to learn about Arabic geomancy. That's fine because we also have European geomancy, which is what I specialize in, and that's been used since about you know twelve hundred. It took about one or two hundred years for it to start entering Europe. By which point, it spread like wildfire across Europe, up and was in constant use, second only to astrology. More popular today than Ouija boards and tarot are combined, up mm-hmm. until you know the beginning of the Enlightenment era when all that stuff kind of got shoved aside. Um, but it's making a renaissance now of its own.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. So, for modern books on geomancy, the current de facto textbook would be John Michael Greer's Art and Practice of Geomancy. He's put out several books on geomancy, but this, I think, is the most comprehensive of them all. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the current de facto textbook until I actually get around to finish writing my own textbook on the matter. <laughs> <laughs> which is, which yes, yes, it's still in the progress. People keep asking me and. Every time someone asks me when it'll be done, I kind of want to pull the George R. R. Martin approach and say, what's your favorite technique? That's the one I'm deleting this time. Uh, No. Um, Stephen Skinner's G. in Theory and Practice is also a great book that focuses more on the historical context and development, how G. came to be from its Arabian origins and focuses most on its development in Europe, especially into the modern days. Um, Those are the two books I would recommend. Uh, There's a whole bunch of other books. My shelf is full of of, them, ranging from stuff from modern age to a lot of modern French works. The modern French geometric scene is pretty good. Like there's been a dearth of it in English, in the Anglophone publishing world, but in the Francophone publishing world, there's a lot of stuff in geomancy. So if you speak French, you're at a better advantage. Or I hope you like copy and pasting stuff from books and putting the Google translate, like what I do. (laughs) There is my blog, and even though, of course, I said it kind of jokingly earlier, I have been writing about Geomancy constantly my blog since 2012, 2013. Um, I've written over 100 articles on Geomancy exploring various aspects of traditional Geomancy, refining techniques, developing techniques, investigating Mm -hmm. how certain things come to be. I also recently put out a free online course on Geomancy. Back when this whole I call it euphemistically the reign of the lady of crowns i'm sure we all understand what i refer to by that yeah. um back in march i kind was like you know what we all need something to study people want geomancy let's give them geomancy so i kind of had this you know multi-week um just informal lectures and chats over zoom on geomancy and i save those recordings and that's my informal geomancy class um about 13 hours of geomancy geomantic uh lessons total Uh, for free. So if you're interested, just go to my blog, you know, go to the About menu, and just Geomancy the Reign at the Lady of Crowns. Um, There's also Dr. Al Cummins, who offers lots of great Geomancy classes through Wolf and Goat, uh, ranging from the very basic introductions to the art to really advanced niche aspects like Geomantic Necromancy, um, you know, working with the heroes, the dead heroes of geomancy, and work with sigils and how to you know, shield with the shield chart. Um, great stuff. He's a he's brilliant with his work. Um, there's a whole bunch of other books, and I have like multiple posts describing here, like all the classical sources in Latin and French. Here's all the modern sources, um, but if you just want to start, and you just want to you know, go to Amazon and just get a book. I would recommend most John Michael Greer's Art Practice Geomancy.
0: Okay, that website again, which we'll also pump at the end, is digitalambler.com. And uh, Sam, you have a couple of short books on, on Geomancy, as well as all the posts and the free course, right?
2: Um, they're ebooks, they're just PDFs, um, okay. and it's only really two, one of which is Lectura Geomantii, which is my personal, I consider it crappy, uh, Latin translation from a 15th century short Western European work on Geomancy, uh, which... I think it's more interesting for the historical value of it. I mean, the rest of it's just kind of blah, you find it in any book. Uh, Like, oh, this figure, this house means blah, blah, blah. It's really Mm -hmm. basic stuff. But there's some interesting little historical tidbits and details. It's most notable because one of the few geometric texts actually gives a historiola for the origin of geomancy, ascribing it to Hermes Trismegistus being taught it by an angel on a mountain. Uh, we don't often find that in Western European works. But in Arabic stuff in Arabic uh, traditions, of GNC, that those sort of historioli and magical bits and pieces are just replete throughout the, uh, right, the Arabic and Persian German literature, and which is largely lacking in European stuff, which is kind of sad. Uh, I guess not everything made the translation or the you know bridge the gap from you know the Middle East to Europe, unfortunately. Uh, there's also secreti geomantici. The Secrets of the Geomancers, which is an exploration into geomantic magic. You know, I just mentioned that the European tradition of geomancy doesn't have a strong magical component to it. It's pretty much always been about divination. Sure, the geomantic sigils are commonly seen, you know, at least from Agrippa's point onward, you know, Cornelius Agrippa and his three books for cult philosophy. We see them in some of the Solomonic Pentacles from the Key of Solomon. But beyond that, there's not a very strong magical current in European geomancy while in Arabic currents there absolutely is mm-hmm. like 100% and it's amazing and brilliant so this ebook is kind of an exploration into how we can start using the geomantic figures and geometric processes for explicitly magical ends well above and beyond just divination using geomantic sigils calling on geomantic angels you know making little mudras For the figures, you know, to do hand and gesture magic, you know, how to make certain intonations or seed syllables or mantras, as it were, for the figures to kind of intone their power into the world. So those are the two ebooks I have on Geomancy. Again, my actual ebook, well, actual book rather, it will eventually go to publishing once I finish it, um, is substantially more hefty. Um, That's still ongoing work though.
0: Okay, well, we'll be looking forward to it, and I'm sure everybody watching and listening will be as well. Uh, Sam, why would somebody uh, choose geomancy over say the I Ching or tarot or another divination uh, method?
2: I guess they're bored. Um, <laughs> I,
1: it really depends
2: on you and your taste, and your and your your what you kind of need. I mean, all divination systems can do the same thing; they can get you information, but. Certain definition systems are better at certain things than others. Like you can technically build an entire house with just a hammer, but having a wrench would also help if you want plumbing. You could hammer a plumbing into existence. I'm not saying you can't, but it's a lot easier with a wrench. Um, I'll pick on tarot for a bit, and I have, of course, huge respect for tarot. Who doesn't? My sister is a tarot you know master in her own right. Um, she taught me something interesting while I was learning tarot back in high school. Tarot answers the question you should be asking. You know, that's that's a good way to think about it. You know, you could try to, you know, wriggle your way into your know, phrasing a question a certain way, but Tara's going to tell you what you really need to know. g man on the other hand, answers exactly the question you ask. No more and no less. So mm-hmm. being very specific, I think, is really crucial with g It's crucial for any form of divination, frankly, and mm-hmm. especially G-mancy. Um, it's very down-to-earth if you catch my drift um yeah it is it, it, No, know like it's it's so down-to-earth it can be outright snarky at times like one time I experimented with it to for past life regression so I sat myself down I asked what happened in my most recent past life I died <laughs> like, I died and was buried. Like, that's all I got out of it. Like, it, it's true. Like, okay, that that's fair. But... <laughs>
1: I, yeah, I actually have to give an example here. Uh, Sam and I read for each other periodically. I think we've had the same 20 bucks going back and forth for the past six, seven years now. It's true. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but there was, a, it was an interesting reading. Um, I had developed a mad crush on somebody uh, it was not somebody who i would normally have had a mad, not a bad person at all but just a, a mad crush and uh, moreover uh when it came right down to it this i knew that this person again not because they were a bad person anyway but was not suitable because interests yeah, interest actually lied somewhere somewhere else but um i had this mad crush so i asked sam to divine out it because it was just kind of bothering me and he gets in the first house Rubius. Now, Rebaeus is red, and it, it's like it's it's about sex, drugs, rock and roll. But it's also about Mars and Scorpio. Not everything being as it should be. It can indicate thieves. It can indicate lies. And when it is in the first house, you the, usually the rule is destroy this chart because the person, the, the querent, is just too messed up. Okay. But Sam went ahead, and, and this is what John Michael Greer recommends. He said, well, you know, you, you can you can go with it. So Sam went ahead and did the whole chart and basically said yeah you know this is not a bad person not going to not, nothing's going to come of all this but you can you know you you can do what you want with this within 1 hour after having that reading and getting the reading back the crush was gone mm-hmm. i had absolutely it, it was like what was i thinking and again this was a perfectly decent human being um, you know, sterling qualities, but within an hour it was completely gone. Um, in this case, what it showed was that you know I was inflamed. In, in the first house, in in, in and when you're doing an astrological chart, the first house is the querent, him or herself, and it shows what that person's state is and what they're thinking. And again. There it was, red. I was inflamed with this kind of odd passion. Um, The only active element was air. So there's the only only thing that was going on with stuff in my own noodle. Uh, And my neck is going like this while the rest of my body is not doing anything. And sure enough, within an hour, I completely lost the crush.
2: Like, Rubens, like, like, yeah, is pure air. But it's not just air, it's the whirlwind rush. It's like the vitriolic, volatile, just what's going on? And so, like, the passion came in, the passion went out, just like a tornado, just whoosh.
1: And I think this also shows an indication of how divination is not, it is used for the wise use or wise gathering of information. Because, again, you can heap all kinds of information on somebody. Um, You can even uh, heap knowledge upon them, but if they are unable to use it, it may even just make things worse., yeah. and in this case, what I got was I was able to make use of it because I got the realized, yeah, uh, you know, I'm just inflamed. I'm on you know, I'm just inflamed right now. um and this is all kind of this is all whoosh. this is all. whoo, And then it went. it blew right away. and it may have actually I may have actually remained inflamed for a much longer period of time if I hadn't had the divination done for me. Sam was direct with me, you know. So yeah. there's an example right there.
0: Ah, that, that's an extremely awesome example. Thank you. And very practical. And I think for those out there who are not familiar with Geomancy, really kind of understood how direct it can be. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> but
2: there's also something I want to bring up, though, as well. To kind of go back to the Tarot notion, you know, to compare it against Tarot, think of your standard Celtic cross spread. You, know, you have your 10 positions of cards. And they each tell you an aspect of the situation. But it doesn't really give you, like, here's the answer card. It doesn't really do that. It gives you all the evidence for you to come up with a judgment of the situation. But how I mentioned we have the chart with the judge at the bottom, the judge is the answer. Gmancy will just give you the answer, yes or no. You'll get it or you won't get it. You know, you'll win or you're out of luck. It'll just tell you in the simplest possible high-level terms. And then it lets you dig for more and more information, more and more detail, as much as you want. So, like, when I do readings for clients, like, a lot of diviners have you know, charged by the time block, you know, 100 bucks for an hour, like that. I can't do that with geomancy. You know, a geomantic reading could take five minutes. It could take 50 minutes. Like, how much, like, how deep do you want me to go? You know, how frantic are you to get a deep enough answer that'll satisfy you? So, I charge a fair amount. I consider myself to charge a fair amount. But I try to, like, sometimes... I kind of have to like fluff out my readings because sometimes it really is no, and people are gonna like that. Like it's an answer; they got the answer they needed, like, they paid for it, but that that's not satisfying for a lot of clients. So like I kind of have to pad myself out at times.
0: Um, Sam, uh, let's see if I can say this right. So we talked about uh, geomancy and some other forms of divination, but what is grandma uh, grandma Nancy? There's a T in there, Grandma Grandma Sam, help me. Gramatomancy. Huh? Gramata, uh, grammatomancy. Grammatomancy. <laughs> yes, grammatomancy. <laughs> what is it?
2: Um, literally means divination by letters. Okay. Now, I'll admit, I made up this word. Like, <laughs> like it's it's a perfectly formed word according to the you know the word combining rules of Greek. It's Toilogium.org. Yeah. Grammatomanteia. Okay, sure. Um, I made up this word because a lot of people online, especially if they've been online like the Hellenic scene, the Hellenic pagan scene for some number of years, might be aware of the works of John Upseth House. Opsapaus, Opsapaus, I, I have to pronounce his name. I, please remember mainly his name, John Opsapaus. Um, he ran. He runs the Bibliotheca Arcana website. And on the website, he shared something interesting. Um, a find from a place in uh, Anatolia, you know, what is now Turkey, of a plinth, a plinth uh, you know, a stone plinth with 24 oracular verses, um, each verse starting with a different letter of the Greek alphabet. So he, this is the Greek alphabet oracle, and it can be considered like a simple kind of runes. You know, if you, you know, do some random process, eight letter beta. Well, you find the oracle for beta, and that's your answer. Um, very simple, just one line answers. Like for beta, the answer is with fortune, you'll have the Pythian as an assistant. So you'll have the help of the gods with a little bit of luck. Um, if you get alpha, you know, everything will go completely well and successfully. Hapanta, alpha, you know, everything will go well. Basel um, Omicron, there are no crops to reap that were not sown. Can't you do the work? If you didn't, you're not gonna get what you want. So it's a very simple form of just sortilage. Of so you have like this pillar in the, you know, the Agora or the marketplace, you'd have like a bowl of stones before it, each stone inscribed with a different letter of the Greek alphabet. You'd say a prayer to Hermes and or Apollo, and you just you reach in, you ask your question, reach in and pull out a stone. And okay, well, I got gamma. What's the oracle for gamma? Oh, the earth will give you the right fruits of your labors. Wonderful. Or you could you know, throw knuckle bones, you know, just tally them up. And whatever your tally is, it'd go to a different letter of the Greek alphabet. Very simple, very easy to learn takes a day to learn, a little bit of memorization of some short sentences, and you're done. But that alone isn't what I would call grammatomancy. Grammatomancy takes that and expands it to a much broader system. I'm actually glad you brought this up because I'm actually preparing a presentation and a class on it for next month for the Salem Summer Symposium, uh, so really timely question. Um, a lot of people are familiar with the Greek magical papyri or planetary magic might be where there's an association between the seven vowels of the Greek alphabet, alpha, epsilon, eta, iota, omicron, upsilon, and omega, with the seven planets. Yeah. So for Saturn work, you might intone omega, oh, as part of like, you know, the background chant of your ritual. Well, you can actually assign all the other constants of the Greek alphabet to the elements and planets as sorry the elements and the signs of the zodiac as well. So with 24 letters of Greek alphabet, you have the four elements plus spirit, you have the 12 zodiac signs, you have the seven planets, all represented by different letters of the Greek alphabet. You also have the numerological aspects, you know, gematria, which some evidence points out is actually older in Greek than it was in Hebrew. You would typically think of gematria to be a Hebrew endeavor, which it absolutely is, but Based on records, we actually have older evidence showing that it was a Greek invention to use the letters to represent numbers one through nine, ten through ninety, hundred through nine hundred. Hmm. You also have you know the various you know ways of associating plants and birds and beasts and stones just by looking at the first letter of the alphabet to the Greek alphabet. You know, the famous work Kiranides or the Cyranides, depending on how you pronou- want to pronounce it, is an alphabetized index of the various things that exist in the world. You know, oh, for Kai, you have, you know, the goose, Cain. You have the swallow. You have the chameleon. You have goldstone. So it'll list all these things alphabetically and give you medical and magical uses for how to combine these things all on a rather convenient alphabetized list. In the Greek magic papyri, you have 24 words of power, each of which starting and ending with a letter of the Greek alphabet. In the Coptic Magic Papyri, you know, a lot of people might be familiar or might be reminded of the 24 elders from the Book of Revelation, from the Book of Daniel. Mm -hmm. Well, in the Coptic Magic Papyri, they were reinterpreted as 24 angels, each of which has a name starting with one of the letters of the Greek alphabet. So, expanding this even further, looking at the elemental, the planetary, and zodiacal associations of these letters, you can also associate them to the various gods and goddesses and spirits and other deities of the Greek pantheon. Gamma, for instance, is associated with Taurus, so you can associate Taurus with Aphrodite, and Aphrodite with Eros and Adonis and Patho and the Naiads and all those other all the other associations you can make. So between the numerological associations, the elemental planetary zodiacal associations, the angelic associations, the ritual associations, the oracular associations, you end up with a really thorough and complete body and system of occult knowledge just by looking at the Greek alphabet. To me, that's why I'm using the term grammatomancy to reflect. It's the whole overarching mystical and magical and divinatory system of the Greek alphabet, and that sense it kind of gives a neat Hellenic parallel to runes. And Lenny, I know you do runes excellently, so you know, yeah, each rune has a name, a certain set of associations, and situations which it arises. And but it's more than just you know a divination system. Each rune is a power unto itself. In some ways, you can kind of consider the Greek alphabet to each letter as a power unto itself. Some people might associate this like being a Greek Kabbalah, which is a little bit messy of a notion, sometimes anachronistic, sometimes culturally appropriative, depending on your perspective. But you can totally look at the Greek alphabet as a system of knowledge and power just using these 24 letters on their own.
0: Right.
1: It's, it's, Sam, I'd like, I'd like to interject. I know we're, we're running out of time, but I want to interject something here. Oh, um, we have the Greek word logos. Yeah, and yeah. It, in the beginning of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Logos. Uh, we Sometimes it's translated as word and, the word, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Uh, David Bentley Hart, uh, the Orthodox uh, scholar and commentator, has actually come out with his own version of the New Testament in which he refuses to translate Logos because he feels that changing it to Word uh, it, it diminishes it. Um the power of the logos. And that is of course is this Greek word. So you've got to be really thinking here about the the power of words and letters and that which is spoken. Um, it's like Clement Salmon
2: in his way of hermes. He isn't translating. <laughs> this is the logos. Sorry.
1: This is fascinating.
2: Yeah. yeah. In Hermetic texts, you often don't find the words mind or reason translated. There's not as noose or logos because, yeah, you could translate them as mind yeah. or reason, but it's that on a much higher level. It's better to have a different word for them.
1: Well, and, and that's something that we've also discussed here on the show a little bit is the notion of metanoia. Yeah. Um, which is sometimes translated as repentance. And then the interesting thing is if you go back even you know, a couple of centuries ago, some of these Bible commentators have come right out and said it was a shame that this word was ever translated into English. Yes. Yeah. Because it has stripped that concept of its of its real meaning. Yeah. Um I think that this is a, a a line of inquiry that we could a rabbit hole that we could go very deeply into. And um, you know, I, I'm not Alice and, and, and neither are you, so I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm going to kind of try and pull this back, but I think that there's some some real material here to be worked with. Absolutely, particularly when it comes to the notion just of trans. When, when you talk about uh, concepts and mysteries that are communicated in one language, when you try to translate it, keep be aware that some of that mystery uh, may be minimized, diminished, or, or altered.
2: You can't translate without interpreting. That's a hundred percent true. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: We'll have At to you later. In.
1: <laughs> we'll
0: do that later. Yeah. And again, a rabbit hole. I'd love to go down that. The, we don't have time, but I know all our uh, all our hardcore Gnostic heads at home like their heads are are shooting up because I honestly think of Marcus, the magician, uh, who uh, used the, the the Greek letters, the twenty four Greek letters, uh, in very interesting ways, and actually saw each of the letters representing an aeon and uh, all all sorts of fascinating things. Also, with uh, uh, Sam mentioning intoning. The uh, the vowels uh, as a way of connecting with the, the planetary intelligences. You know, my theory has always been in the Gnostic text we have these long lines of vowels, right? And absolutely, what, what, yeah. Yeah, what they're doing there is actually trying to control them because they see the planets as archons. So that's that's always been my theory. Um, anyways, we don't have time to go down those rabbit holes. <laughs> Sam, we uh, rather quickly, if, if you could give us five minutes. I, I put in a, a question here for everybody who uh, likes shoes sprouting off online, which includes myself. Uh, what, what, what are some trends you're seeing in occultism in that you like? And what are some that you think are not so great? Trends? That assumes yes. I'm actually involved in the cultural community.
2: Um, I mean, what I like seeing is, you know, how much we're collaborating nowadays. You know, I'm sure you've heard this over and over, you know, the age of the internet, the openness of the internet, but it's true. But it's not just collaboration between occultists for groups. It's also collaboration between, you know, academia and practical groups. You know, there's a lot of occultists that you might not expect, you know, obviously in the government, I'm one of them, um, but you know, also in academia, you know, a lot of academics have to kind of keep their you know, magical stuff secret because they yeah. it's crossing the boundary between emic and etic. Um, but it's true, you know, so much of our practice can be better fortified and supported and strengthened by just looking at the research. UPG is obviously wonderful, but looking at actual evidence, looking at the actual development and listening to experts in general has never been easier. I think it really behooves us all to really take advantage of that nowadays. You know, when your most famous, respected professor is literally just an email away, like, why not? Send me an email, ask them. Um things I dislike. Gosh. Something I like to rant about from time to time is. Pride and hubris, and not like this is a new thing, but I think we need to emphasize the role of humility in our own ethics and practices more. Yeah. Like for me, I have a practice where I say the litany of humility, you know, fairly regularly. I mean, obviously, I'm an expert in the things I'm an expert in, but it's the internet that we're on all the time, especially nowadays. We're all that's like all we're doing. It's how we're interacting with each other, and it's so easy to forget the human on the other side of the connection. And to think that we're the the center of the world, of our own lives, Mm -hmm. sure. But when you combine that with actually getting mixed up in the powers of the cosmos, like it can lead to a disastrous tendency towards pride and hubris, towards domineering arrogance, towards abusing others. And Mm -hmm. it's sad a lot of times. And I think we need to really take a better closer look at if you want shadow work, or just want to look in a freaking mirror and just, Mm -hmm. you know, realize that you're human, you know, humble to be of the earth because it's from the earth we come, it's to the earth we return. Remember that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great place for us to uh, close off. Thanks so much, Sam. Uh, Before we depart, I have to put in uh, our our commercial for Talk Gnosis, which I should really be doing at the beginning of the show because now people have turned it off. You know, Sam's no longer talking. It's now boring. But just to break even, we do need your support on patreon.com slash Gnostic. Uh, We hire the awesome 99 Perspective Studio. Uh, When I get really excited, I shout a lot, and you can hear my mic peeking out. So if you don't want to hear that anymore, (laughs) you can help me get some better gear. Uh, So just to help us break even, to do this awesome show, to bring you some of the best of the best the best uh interviews and artists and occultists and gnostics uh we really need your help and i know that these are trying times but you can donate as little as one dollar uh, per piece of media per month uh if you uh, are completely broke and you can't contribute we 100 percent understand because i am often in that position myself so please uh share rate us uh like and subscribe on youtube and it's you know just like Sam was saying, if you're in the government or in academia and uh, you have to hide, you have to hide your your occultism. Your you don't want to share this on social media. Just email it to somebody you think w- who would like the show. So uh, we really appreciate your help. We couldn't do it without you. Uh, we I know I keep promising this right now for the Patreon. What you get is you get the show early, you get it live. Uh, we are hoping to add some more in. I, if you donate, you will go to Nasa Kevin and become enlightened. That's all I got for you you so far. So um, yeah, so uh, I'm signing off. We're running a little late, but it's been an awesome show. Sam, thanks so much. Bishop Laney, always a Thank you
1: so much. Thanks for joining us, Sam. Thank
0: you, you so much. Have you, a good Deacon. night.
1: All right. Take care.